As Goody said a few minutes ago, we're um, starting a new series called Conversations with Jesus. We might want to actually call it eavesdropping on Jesus, actually. I, I love the fact that when you open up the, the Gospels, there are all these conversations that Jesus is having with all different kinds of people, right? Uh, and I think they're there so that we're invited to listen in to what Jesus is having to say, what he has to say about himself, about what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship with him and to know God. And when we listen into these conversations, um, we can learn a lot of things about Jesus. We can get to know him, but we can also get to know ourselves and other people a little bit as well. Because even though uh, those folks lived so long ago, uh, there are ways that we can relate to them, right? I, I mean, uh, for instance, when we look at some of these conversations, you'll pick up on the fact that uh, one of them is sort of an academic. Uh, there aren't any academics that live here in Durham, so that, that might be a stretch for some of you. <laughs> you'll also uh, encounter Jesus having this conversation with a successful, affluent young man, uh, a woman who is uh, caught up in an affair, most likely, an adulterous relationship. A woman who is on the fringes of society, and even a, a man who is wealthy and yet on the fringes of society as well. And two sisters that are having trouble getting along. And all kinds of these other conversations. And so there's, there are ways for us to sort of listen into these conversations and learn a lot about who Jesus is, but also learn about who we are and that might help us actually help others know who Jesus is as well. And so I want to invite you this morning to begin this, uh, this journey uh, of eavesdropping, so to speak, on Jesus' conversation, starting with a, a conversation that, that's recorded in John chapter 3 uh, with an academic of sorts and a, a man who is very serious of, about his faith and about faith entirely. So if you'll read along with me, if you can, uh, you just listen as I read. It might be easier to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Let me read this for us. This is where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will last forever. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, Son, and Spirit, I ask that you help us, that nothing I have said or done or left unsaid or undone would in any way at all hinder the work of your Spirit. Lord, we ask that you use this this conversation that you had with Nicodemus to give shape to our lives, to help us to know you and to help us to understand what it means to walk with you. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. So we know a little bit about Nicodemus, thanks to John. Our text in John 3 shines this light on him. He was a Pharisee, which to me is a little surprising. He's a ruler of the Jews. And perhaps the teacher of Israel. Later in John, in John 7 and in 19, we see Nicodemus and and learn that he carries a lot of influence in his community. Uh, And he even participates in Jesus' burial. In fact, uh, when he has this one encounter we read earlier, he's defending Jesus in some ways. And later on, he's involved in his burial, which makes me think something happened in the life of this Pharisee this ruler of the Jews, this teacher, to go from this meeting by night uh, to being involved in Jesus' life in some ways. And that's significant, especially given what we know about Pharisees, right? Nicodemus uh, is a Pharisee, and that word Pharisee uh, extends beyond the New Testament, doesn't it? I mean, if if we use that word to describe someone today, we don't use it often, Uh, But it immediately makes you think of someone who is overly zealous, maybe a bit too rigid in their piety, that sort of thing. Uh, To some extent, we might think of them as villains of the New Testament. They might actually uh, be a foil to Jesus, like uh, Malfoy to Harry Potter, that sort of thing. Uh, But that's that's actually like too one-dimensional, isn't it? Because they were were people that were very serious about their faith. Um, They were serious about religious faithfulness. Uh, they uh, were serious about the Torah, about teaching it, about living it out, about encouraging, if not demanding, that others do the same. They wanted to protect their people, their community from idolatry. They were very serious about what it meant to faithfully live that out. Nicodemus is also a ruler of the Jews, which means he has this influence that extends beyond just, uh, just teaching the Torah. He is uh, involved in some ways in the Sanhedrin, as we see later on, as he's sort of communicating, he has this leadership role there, he's respected in the community, and he's also a, a teacher of the Torah. In fact, um, we think that Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, which seems to indicate uh, that he may, may have been one of the most highly regarded teachers of the Torah in Israel at the time. 
There's that potential. Um, but which means, at least to me, that he's something of an academic, right? I mean, he's had to study the Torah to be able to, like, teach it. So there's, there's that sense. He seems to be like he's uh, someone that we could possibly identify with. Dale Bruner, uh, a theologian, points out that Nicodemus is a member of probably the most earnest and Bible-believing branch of faith in Jesus' time. He is a leading figure of the Jewish people, and he believes that Jesus has come from God because no one could do the things that Jesus is doing unless God's with him. It's difficult, Bruner says, to imagine a person more qualified to be a good person or to enjoy a good relationship with God or at least to ask the right questions than Nicodemus. That's who this man is. I think we can relate to him. I think he would probably somehow or another fit in within the warp and woof of our world. And yet, tucked within Nicodemus's uh, culture and life, this, all these accomplishments, as one theologian put it, there was this attitude, perhaps, that as an Orthodox Jew, he presumed that his place in the coming kingdom was assured by virtue of his race and circumcision. Besides that, he was a leading religious professional and a, moreover a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council. But, as Dale Bruner actually goes on to say, Jesus is about to put Nicodemus and others like him, perhaps even us, on serious notice. He's about to upend Nicodemus's world. Under the cover of darkness, for whatever reason, uh, Nicodemus and Jesus meet. John uh, does a, makes a point of putting that detail in there, that they meet under the cover of darkness. For, for whatever reason, maybe it's because uh, Nicodemus just wanted to get Jesus by himself. You know, Jesus is pretty busy during the day. Maybe the crowds, just, hey, I just want, I just want some privacy with him. Or, or perhaps it's because he doesn't really want to be seen with Jesus to lend credibility. We don't know, and it really doesn't matter, because the thing is, they're together. They're, they're together, and they're having this conversation. It doesn't really matter why, but it really matters that it's happening. In fact, I'd like to pause right there for just one second and point out two things I think are significant. First, the fact that they met at night says a whole lot about Jesus, doesn't it? Sure does to me, because it was unusual. Not for us, but it was unusual in those days for them to have met at night. But there is Jesus. And, and we have just heard that famous passage from John 3, 16 and 17, that God's motive for Christ coming to, into the world was love. And love means I'm willing to meet with this person no matter what. I think Jesus would have met with Nicodemus in a tornado if that's what it took. I think Jesus still does that. That no matter what, he's willing to meet with us to begin a conversation wherever we are, However we come to him, he's ready for that conversation to begin. I think that says a lot about Jesus, something that we need to keep in the back of our, our mind. But the second thing is, is that as we read John 1, John 3, 1 to 21, when we come to the end of verse 21, there isn't like this massive conversion moment. There isn't sort of this culminating end to this conversation. And I think that's significant, especially as we think about what it means to both know Jesus and to make him known. Because I think this conversation with Nicodemus is sort of this thing that continues on. And I think that's how it actually works. As the, the more we get to know Jesus, the, the longer this conversation goes on. As people come to actually begin to know Jesus, it's this ongoing conversation. And I think that's significant. It's an ongoing conversation, and the Holy Spirit actually plays a critical role in it. In fact, I think that's the central part of this text in John 3, 1 to 21. The significant role of the Holy Spirit in terms of these conversations with Jesus 
and what it means to make him known and what it really means to know him. In fact, one theologian said the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus is crucial, is a crucial section of what the whole of the whole Bible, since it expresses most clearly the truth of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the fact that it is by the Spirit and by the secret powerful operation of God the Spirit alone that one can experience salvation. And Jesus alludes to that in verse 3 when he says something that had to put Nicodemus on his heels. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That, um, that still has a weird way of sort of landing on my ear. Maybe it does you. I think it did Nicodemus, that idea about being born again. Because Nicodemus actually comes back and says, how, how can a man be born again? How can he be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? You can tell that he's not thinking spiritually, at least not totally. He's sort of thrown off the rails a little bit. He's thrown back. But Jesus is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and their heart to prepare them in order to really hear the gospel, to respond to it. He's telling Nicodemus that in order for a person to have a relationship with God, an ongoing conversation with God, one that lasts him into eternity, uh, the work of God's spirit has to happen. This new spiritual birth. This is God's work, he's saying. Not something that comes by being religious or being born into a religious community or being part of a religious community or something we say or do, but something that God's spirit begins in the heart, in the mind, in the soul of a person. God's about this. And that rocked Nicodemus. It might rock some of us. It shook his categories. In fact, in in Paul, and you know, Paul was a Pharisee too. And there's this attitude among them, right? And in Philippians 3, Paul sort of helps us understand Nicodemus a little bit better. When he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was Nicodemus's culture. That was Nicodemus. He's this Pharisee. That's this attitude that's prevalent among them. But Jesus uses this word, born again. When we think about that word again, like we think about again, but that word could also be translated from above. In fact, other places within John's gospel, that's, that's how that word is translated. It means from above. This idea that there's a spiritual action that's taking place. And Jesus is actually pointing Nicodemus to something that was God said he would do back in Ezekiel 36. He's teaching the teacher of Israel something significant. He points back to Ezekiel 30, 36 when he says to be born again or born from above. And he talks about in verse 5 to 8 about the water and the spirit, all the sort of those images. In Ezekiel 36, it says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All the way through Ezekiel 36, there's this I, I will, I, I will. This is God's work. God's at work. His spirit is at work. Touching the heart, moving the person towards this understanding. Because Jesus then goes in verse 14 and 15 and he points to something that happened in Numbers. When he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
he's hearkening back to this moment in the life of Israel where the people were in the wilderness and they grumbled and rebelled and they spoke against God and Moses. They sinned against the Lord. They sinned against Moses. And there were snakes that came among them and began to bite them. And they cried out, recognizing that they had sinned. And they went to Moses to intercede for them as they were being tortured by these snakes. And God told Moses to make a bronze serpent, hold it up on a, on a stick so that they could see. And everyone who looked upon it, who recognized their own sin and repented and looked to this serpent uh, on the stick, were, were healed. And Jesus uses this example from Ezekiel 36 and from Numbers to teach uh, Nicodemus this understanding that God's spirit stirs the hearts of his people, recognizing that sin has had this major impact on them and that they need a savior. They can't, they can't fix themselves. So as the son of man is lifted up, five times in John's gospel that phrase is used, the lifted up. And every time it's referenced to, the, to Jesus being crucified, if they lift up and look up at Christ on the cross, they'll be saved. And Jesus is pointing to the work of the spirit in terms of preparing the heart in order to recognize this deep need that we have that we need a Savior, someone to help us. We can't fix ourselves. This, the work of the Spirit does that. And then we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our only hope in salvation. He's talking, in essence, and telling Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, this ruler of the Jews, he's telling him the gospel. And it is powerful. This is God's work in the world. This is spiritual work. And he's laying it out there. And then in verses uh, 16 and 17, that great passage, he tells him God's motive for doing it. And it's God's love for the world. God's love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's motive for sending his spirit into the world, for touching the hearts of of men and women and children, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, is because he loves us. God loves you. God loves you. God sent his son into the world. He sent his spirit into the world so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life so that you would, you would know life and life in its fullest measure, both now and the life to come. And Jesus is having this powerful conversation with Nicodemus, and it must have been mind-blowing for Nicodemus to have his categories shifted and upended and it's great news isn't it it's powerful news but Jesus isn't finished talking to Nicodemus this religious man sometimes I've forgotten as I've thought about John three sixteen. I remember the first one of the first times I remember seeing that passage um, was at football games I don't know if you all remember the NFL the guy would stand in the end zone with the John three sixteen sign I thought that was cool and you know like we think about it in terms of this great passage for, for outreach. But it struck me not long ago. He, he's not talking to an outsider. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a teacher. He's a representative of God's people. He's talking to us. He tells a religious man, a man responsible for teaching God's people, a man responsible for leading God's people, a man... You had a great deal of influence on their community. Very hard truth. And it troubles a lot of folks today, especially as we think about what it means to make Jesus known, right? Because Jesus, um, in verse 18 to 21, uses this really uh, difficult language. He uses words that we don't like to use in the Christian community. Uh, 
we don't like to use it at all. But the context, remember, as he's talking to Nicodemus and the religious community, Jesus says in verse 18, whoever believes in him, meaning Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever who does not believe is condemned already. There's those words, condemned. We don't like to use those words, but there it is. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. We don't like to use that word either, but there it is. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's not talking to a Roman centurion. This text uh, makes us uncomfortable. But remember the motive for this? It goes back to verse 16 and 17. God loves us. And God loved uh, Nicodemus, and Jesus loved Nicodemus so much so that he's willing to say the hard thing so that he'll understand how significant it is that God's spirit moves in first in the hearts of people, turning people's hearts, this understanding, this powerful aspect of the gospel, that if, that if your heart begins to turn towards the things of God, it's evident that God's spirit is at work in you and at work in the world. If you turn any, any way at all, begin to turn towards the things of God, it's evidence that God's spirit is at work. God's spirit goes forth and just like the wind and does these things in human hearts, turning people's uh, understanding that I, I am a mess and I can't fix myself. I need, I need Jesus. That's what this whole text is about, that God is communicating quite clearly to Nicodemus, to us, that it begins with God's spirit to work within us, making us aware of the depths and the impact of the sin in our life and our need for a savior. And our only hope is found in Christ, who comes not to condemn, but to save, to redeem, and to restore. It's a work of God so that we don't boast, but we boast in what God has done. It's this powerful thing. In fact, Paul, remember, uh, the Pharisee, had a pretty interesting conversation with Jesus himself that changed his entire understanding of how things worked in the world. And in Philippians 3, 7 to 11, he said this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is one of my favorite words. I use that in football games all the time at referees. It's rubbish. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. It's rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And friends, to reject this, to try to be righteous on our own, to reject Christ, makes me shudder. Because in essence, what happens then is that we're rejecting the love of God. Because ultimately, underneath it all, that's the motive. Because God loves us so much, he sent his son into the world. In order that we might know him, walk with him, and make him known. Jesus has made it clear, God loves the world. These conversations with Jesus are 
peppered throughout the gospel. They're anything but simple. And I think that's what Nicodemus discovered. I think he discovered that this was a very complex thing. I think, I like to imagine him leaving that conversation that night uh, and probably being up until the dawn as the light of new day sort of dawns on him, as he begins to recognize all that Jesus has said and what it means and what it entails for him. And we catch these glimpses throughout the rest of, of John's gospel. Something powerful happened in the life of Nicodemus that night, which makes me, when I read about him as a Pharisee, I'm surprised, right? Because he doesn't behave like the other Pharisees. He defends Jesus. He's present at his burial. Something happened as he began this conversation with Jesus, as he began to know him and understand what it means to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to walk with him, and what it means to actually make him known. My hope for us is that we'll walk away from this text in the same way Nicodemus did, continuing this conversation with Jesus, understanding what it means to know him in deeper, more powerful ways, and understanding and allowing the work of the Holy Spirit to do great things in our hearts and lives. Let me pray and ask the Lord to do that work within us. Father, I ask that you be with us and help us as we continue our worship. But I pray that when we walk from here this day that we... Um, that we're attentive to the work of your spirit as you make us aware of things in our own hearts and lives where we need to repent and look to Jesus and the hope of our salvation in him. I pray for those, Lord, who may be here today and don't know you at all, that they would begin this conversation with you through Jesus, that they would come to know you. Lord, we ask that you be with us in powerful ways. Help us to become more like you and to be a faithful follower and servant. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.